welcome to part three of our series, How to Neighbor. Uh, and uh, before we get into that, uh, I have a set of keys here that was given to me that was found underneath one of the seats. Does anybody know who they might belong to? Um, they're up for the highest bidder. Um, who would like to bid $20? 20 Do I hear 20 Do I hear 20 Do I th- hear 30 Rich, how much are they worth to you? <laughs> there you go. You've got the keys. <laughs> uh, well, the series, as we said, is, is how to neighbor. And it stems from, from the conversation Jesus had with a man who ended up, he, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, we're supposed to love God with everything that's in us and love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is our neighbor? And instead of answering the question, who, because the question, who, is really, in one sense, is pretty easy to answer because the only people we have to love as ourselves, the only people that we are called to love are just people that God loves, right? So that makes it pretty simple. If God doesn't love someone, then we don't have to love them. But if He does, then we have a responsibility, right? Would you agree with that? Okay. Um, So the question isn't so much, you know, or the question the man asked was who, because he was wanting to limit, you know, he's wanting to say, okay, who's within the realm of who I have to love and who's outside? Um, But Jesus primarily addressed the question of how. You know, by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, you know, how, this is how to love. This is, you know, when he tells him, go and do likewise. Well, you know, at the, at the, the, the end of the story, you know, Jesus told this man, the Good Samaritan, that, that, that um, um, the man, that, that the Samaritan man had found this man beaten by the side of the road. Now, and said, and, and, and told him how to love. Now, often when we think about our neighbor, who do we think about? We think about the context of our friends, maybe some of our co-workers, people we like, people we worship with, people who live in our neighborhood, and we think of, you know, maybe just, you know, doing some nice things for them or, or, or having nice feelings for them or whatever. Well, often, you know, that's what we think, but in this series, we are being challenged to broaden our view of our neighbor and think of what Jesus is saying to us in light of some of the bigger problems facing our society. So we've been looking at how to love our neighbor in various contexts. How do we do this? What does it look like when we love our neighbor in the context, for say, for the first week, we talked about the context of racism, the problem of racism. It's a huge problem in our, in, in our country. It's driving a deep wedge in our country. And, you know, rather than, you know, I used to think it was pretty much a problem of the past. You know, we left it behind in the 60s you know, and have been moving away from it, now it seems like we're moving back toward it, and it's driving a bigger and bigger wedge in our country. Huge problem. It can't be denied. It can't be ignored, uh, or it'll just continue to get worse. And if, if, you know, as a follower of Jesus, what we need to do is search our hearts. We need to search our own hearts. It's easy to point the finger at a problem that somebody else has. We need to search our own hearts and say, okay, Lord, show me my heart. Show me what's in there that I need to deal with. See, the, the, to the degree that we fail to love people of other races, 
we fail to love God. To the degree that we fail to love people of other races, we fail to love God. Bottom line. Bottom line. Last week, then, we looked at the problem of, or the issue of orphans, loving how to love orphans in the broader sense of the term. The most vulnerable of our society, the most likely to get lost in our society because they're the least able to speak up for themselves and to stand up for themselves. So, you know, we, we, we talked about that. And today, we're addressing an issue which I think would be close to at least most of our hearts, if not all of our hearts. Uh, in fact, I think if we took a poll, I think every single hand would come up. I believe if most of us were as, we would say we would, would like to help the poor. Okay? We would like to help those who are poor. Um, kind of universal thing. We want to help people that are, have less than us. And, and I was in grade school. I used to, uh, very, very young, I used to save up whatever little money I could get, you know, uh, 50 cents here, a couple dollars there, whatever, and send it to St. Joseph's Indian School in South Dakota. You know, I'd send a few dollars, you know, whenever I could get it, have, you know, give it to my dad. My dad would write out a check uh, and send it to Father Thomas. And, um, you know, he would send a thank you letter back, this, you know, pre-printed newsletter telling what was going on at the school and how people were being helped and usually give some little plastic trinket, you know, that... Uh, you know, as a gift to say thank you. And, you know, I, I, I felt at that age even, I felt in some way I was making a difference. You know, I, I, and I suppose in some small way I was making a difference with, with my, you know, few dollars in, in that little offering every month or a couple of months, whatever. Um, and that was my understanding of helping the poor. Just send a little money whenever you could to some missionary somewhere, you know, and I felt good. I felt like I was doing something. And I think often that's what we think of when we talk about and when it's brought up the issue of helping the poor. Just send a little money to, you know, whenever, whenever you can uh, or, or an offering. And, and it's while it's certainly one way to help, that's only a part of the picture. It's not the whole picture. And today we're going to talk about going beyond just, you know, the thought of giving money to the poor, which is often our response when we see poverty, we you know, pull out the checkbook, pull out our wallet, and we give in response, uh, uh, or maybe given a special collection, we respond with a, um, a, a short term. You know, maybe it's like a, responding like a Band-Aid, you know, and, and you know, uh, the effects of which are, are short-lived, and, and it's good, it's a good thing to do, we need to do that. Today I want to talk about empowering the poor. And that's a little different. See, by empowering a person, we can help to break cycles of poverty in a person's life. The problem is even defining poverty can be problematic. Even de de defining it. Our cultural worldview colors our experiences. We need to understand this in every single area of our lives. Our experiences, our thoughts, our mindsets were colored by uh, 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 our worldview. We see things the way we see things. We believe what we believe because of the way we see the world around us. Poverty to one person is struggling to pay their bills paycheck to paycheck. 
you know, they get their paycheck and it's gone, you know, it's spent before they can get to the bank even. That's poverty to one person. Poverty to another person is not even having a paycheck to take to the bank. And if you've ever traveled outside of the U.S., chances are you've seen poverty at a level you can't even imagine. I remember standing in a home one time with a dirt floor. This home had a dirt floor, barely had walls up. Uh, I think there was a, 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 an old sheet that was hanging, you know, dividing between the sleeping area and the main section um, where 13 kids, 13 or 15, I think it was 13 kids lived with their parents. And they shared one, and I mean one, outside toilet with 30 other families that lived all lived on this hillside. That brings it to a whole nother level. But whatever the poverty we're looking at, how do we empower people who are in need in a way that would honor Christ and help them break free. Matthew 25, see this should matter to us. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a story about what it's like going to be like when he returns for his church, for his people. He's going to separate those who are his from those who are not his. And he's going to speak to those who are his and say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was homeless you gave me a place to stay. I was this and you did that. I was this and you, you know, it goes on like that. And of course, they look back to him surprised and say, when do we do that? When did we see you hungry and give you something to eat? When do we give you something to drink? When did we see you homeless and give you shelter? You know, and, you know, when did we do these things? And Jesus answers them in Matthew 25, 40, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. I want you to think about that for a moment. Whenever you use what you have to help someone who doesn't have what you have, you're helping Jesus. Whenever you can use what you have to empower someone who has less than you have, you're doing it to Jesus himself, whether it's a lot or a little, a great amount or a small amount, a major thing, a minor thing. You're not just helping in the name of Jesus. You are doing it to Jesus. Proverbs also tells us this in Proverbs 19, 17. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord. To the Lord. How a society and how the church responds to people in poverty matters a great deal to God. <clears throat> Look what the Apostle John says in his first letter to the church. 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, if we say that you know, we love God and love people and don't back it up with actions and attitude, we're just blowing hot air. If we don't love people, we can't love God. If we love God, we'll help people. 
So, what about this thought of empowering the poor? How do we do that? That's what I want to talk about today. Rather than lay out, you know, uh, uh, programs and ask for offerings that go towards specific needs or projects, what I want to do today is discuss some principles that we need to understand if we're going to help empower people that we know or meet to come out of poverty, to break those cycles. And the place we need to start is by asking, what is poverty? What is poverty? The answer might seem obvious, but it really isn't. Let's hear some thoughts. What is poverty to you? <clears throat> what is poverty? Anybody? Homelessness? Okay. What else? The what? It's a smell. Interesting. Interesting. No money for food. What else? Yeah. Not having materialistic things that you need. Okay. All those were good answers. All those are what I would expect from, the, from a, any congregation in this country. You s what? Having no hope. See, most Americans define poverty as a lack of something material. I mean, you nailed it right on the head. Most Americans define poverty as lacking something, some kind of material thing. You don't have money. You don't have a car. For some, it's they don't have the latest iPhone. You know, theirs is, theirs is a year old and a new one's come out, and so they're in poverty because, you know, some people define poverty that way. And most Americans, it's a lack of something material. Ruby Payne, in this book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, defines poverty a little differently. Beginning of the book, this is what she gives as a working definition of poverty. And Alan, you came the closest. The extent to which an individual does without resources. It's the extent to which a person does without resources, and then she lists a bunch of different resources, financial, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, support systems, relationships slash role models. In fact, she says, you know, emotional resources are, are the, the most important uh, of all, because they represent, uh, they, they allow individual to not return to old habit patterns when they're present. See, it's without the resource. It can be support systems. Who, who do you go to when you have a need? Okay, let's say that you've got to go to work tomorrow morning, and you get up, you're getting ready for, to work, for, for, for work, and all of a sudden, your young child is sick. And I mean really sick. Who do you call? What do you do? <laughs> I like that. Who do you, who do you, who do you call? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, or, or, or this way. Your child care person 
calls first thing Monday morning, man, I've been up all night with the flu. I can't watch the kids today. What do you do then? Who do you call, right? What if there is no grandma to call? What do you do in those situations? One of the reasons we talk about the importance of not just attending Sunday services, we talk a, uh, a lot about becoming a part of the life of the church, getting involved in ministry, getting involved in the life of the church, not just coming and sitting on Sunday morning. One of the reasons, there's numerous reasons, but one of the things that that does is it gives us a, the relationships and a support system that can help us through difficult times. It gives us the, the, the relationships. It gives us the support systems. You see, poverty is more than just the lack of material goods. It's a lack of various kinds of resources that we need. When we lack the, res when we lack the resources that we need in any of these areas, that's poverty. And it's about more than just money. And yet, most Americans because of our worldview, define poverty as a lack of something material. But a survey was taken of 60,000 poor people in low-income countries, and the truly poor define poverty differently than the, Ameri than the typical American does. The truly poor define poverty as a mindset. It's a mindset. They never defined it as lacking material goods. It was more about the way they think. And what the, the, as they took the survey, what they heard over and over was, it's a deep sense of shame. A mindset of shame. They would say, I feel very ashamed that I can't do more. I can't make it out of this. They talked about there being an, an, an ongoing feeling of worthlessness about being in fear all the time, about humiliation. And the word that came up again and again was hopeless. Came up again and again, hopeless. Talked about being trapped. Can't see any way out of it because they don't have access to resources like education or transportation they're just consumed. It's all they can do to, to, to focus on putting food on the table for their family for that day. Are they going to be able to eat? See, it's all about a mindset. We don't have this. We, you know, we can't do that. It's hopeless. So if we want to empower people to break out of a cycle of poverty, we need to find a way to help people change the way they think, to change that mindset. We need to help people turn from a mindset of hopelessness to a sense of the hope that God gives that they can break out of the cycle. Often our, our response is to throw money at this situation, and, and giving is a good thing. Do not tell me, or, or, or do not tell me that, yeah, that I was telling you not to give. That is a good thing. But if that's all we do, it's not enough. 
Sometimes it can make things worse. Money is not the solution to everything. It's our mindset. First year we came to this church, we started in this church. We first came in October of 86. And um, that first Christmas rolled around. At the time, we were meeting in the old bowling alley on 17th Street. I know Brenda remembers that. Does anybody else remember that? Anybody else here from, from then? Okay. The old, yeah, the old bowling alley on, on uh, 17th Street. I forget what it is now. I think school IU has it for something. But anyway, we were meeting there, and we decided we wanted to do something nice. We wanted to, you know, do something special for people who were struggling, all good intentions and that. We decided to sponsor some families, have a big Christmas party and program. So we, you know, we got some names from the Salvation Army of some families that might be interested. We sent out invitations to them. And you really wanted to make it nice. We, you know, we, we, we decorated that old bowling alley. We had you know, told everyone, hey, make this really nice. Wear your nicest Christmas outfits, nicest Christmas dress. Or, or, or you know, man, if you have a Christmas tie or you know, nice Christmas sweaters. And this is before ugly sweaters came to be a thing. Not that they weren't a thing. We just didn't know it was a thing. You know, it's, it, we wouldn't wear them intentionally then. Now people wear those intentionally, uh, but not then. Anyway, we, we, we you know, we, we, we wanted to do this really nice, and, I, and I've talked about this before, um, uh, make it a really big deal, where the afternoon of the party, somebody began to think about the people that we had invited. None of them had nice Christmas clothes. None of them... None of their homes were all decked out. We realized that everything we wanted to do to make it as nice as we could for them was actually going to serve as a painful reminder to them of how much better off other people had it than they did. And it was only going to add to their embarrassment and shame. So we got on the phone, started passing word around, just said, hey, just dress down. Just dress down. Just, you know, dress, dress normal. Don't come in in nice Christmas outfits and tie or new sweater or whatever. Just wear your normal clothes. We needed to remove the us and them distinctives. So that's what we did. And it turned out it was the right move because we found out through conversation through the course of the evening that some of the ladies who had been invited almost didn't come. really took some coaxing for them to come. Why? Because they didn't have a nice dress to wear. Some of them they didn't have any dress to wear. The men didn't have suits, couldn't dress up. They just had their normal, everyday clothes. Think about this. Have you ever walked into a place where you felt severely underdressed? Ever do that? Show of hands. You walk in and you just think, oh my gosh, I am so underdressed for this thing. Think now about how you felt. How did that make you feel? Recently, I was on vacation and I was invited 
to a special dinner event, nice banquet. Um, I hadn't brought a suit with me. I'm, who wears a suit on vacation? I don't wear a suit anyway. You know, I have one hanging in my closet. I wear it once or twice a year, but you know, that, that, that's it. Well, you know, I had, so I certainly didn't have it on vacation. All I had was what I wear to church. In fact, what I had was what I wore to church that Sunday because I had come from church, okay? Khaki pants and a button-down shirt. And they said, oh, that'd be fine. That's perfect. It's, you know, it'll, 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 you'll, 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 you'll be fine. I said, really? What are people going to be wearing? Oh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. So I went. We arrived there, walked in, and there was a whole banquet room and opening foyer of this place of people dressed to the hilt. I mean, ladies in the fanciest dresses that you had ever seen, the hats, I mean, I mean, it was predominantly, it was predominantly an African-American group, okay? They knew how to dress. You ever, you ever watch, how many, I won't ask how many racehorse fans do we have, but how many Kentucky Derby fans do we have that, that you, you watch the Kentucky Derby? Okay, there's four races I watch, make a point to watch, watch every year. The Indy 500, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. Okay, well, if you've ever been to Churchill Downs or you've ever watched the Kentucky Derby on TV, you know the outfits the ladies wear with the hats and all that. Well, this was like an African-American Kentucky Derby. I mean, it, they were dressed to the hilt, the men, the fancy suits, and the colors and everything. I didn't know they made suits in some of those colors. I mean, so, and here I am in my khakis and my button-down shirt, open collar, standing there with a water bottle, hiding behind a water bottle. You know how much comfort you can get from a cup of coffee or a water bottle? Just, you know, you walk in, if you don't have it, you walk in there and you're, you don't know anybody, just who you came with all these other people, or you can stand there like this, you know. Right? Another reason to drink coffee or drink water, something. Anyway, I was so underdressed and I was so aware of it the whole evening. I, I had a great time. It's a wonderful evening. It was a blast. I loved it. But I was constantly aware of how underdressed I was. Now, it's one thing when that happens because you didn't know you were supposed to dress up or because you didn't bring that with you or, you know, I could have run home, got my suit, and come back. That's one thing. It's another thing when it happens and you literally don't own anything nicer to wear, right? It affects your self-esteem, and you feel what? Broken inside. Feel broken inside. You see, the root of all poverty is brokenness. It's brokenness. 
Things in this world aren't working the way that God intended. And that's because of mankind's fall in the garden. So when Jesus came announcing in Luke chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was good news. Because the root of poverty is brokenness, and he came to heal the brokenness. The answer to the brokenness is Jesus. And we need to understand something. When, when, you know, we need to understand that Christ is the one who saves. He's the one who heals the brokenhearted. He's the one who sets people free. The root, of, uh, the root problem of poverty is brokenness, and Jesus is the one who binds up the brokenhearted. He uses us, but the responsibility is his. He just works through us. The responsibility is not ours. When we understand that at its root, poverty is more of a mindset than a lack of something material, that it comes from a root of brokenness and that Jesus is the answer, that changes how we try to help and empower people who are in need. You see, while it's true that Christ is the one who saves, he's the one who heals a brokenhearted and all of that, he's the one who sets us free, it's also true that we as Christ followers are called to empower the poor. We're called to do the work that he's given us to do, to enter in with him, but the responsibility is his. We just say, yes, Lord. You, me, this church, every believer is called to empower the poor. But how do we do it? I'm going to give you three things to keep in mind. First, we need to recognize that we're called to serve others, not save others. We do the serving. He does the saving. Only Jesus can save people. He has the power. We're just the conduit. As we serve people... We're putting ourselves in a position for His power to flow through us. And that takes the responsibility of healing the brokenness off of us and puts it on Him. And it also protects the dignity of the person whom we're serving. Because when you serve someone, what are you doing? You're placing yourself under them. Right? We're serving we're coming, placing ourselves under them. There's two ways we can serve, relief and restoration. Relief is immediate, temporary help during and after a crisis. You know, maybe there's a tornado, there's a hurricane, some other disaster and that wreaks havoc on an area, you know, where a family loses everything due to fire, someone loses their job, someone loses a loved one, whatever it is, people pull together and give immediate help. It's temporary. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, we sent, we immediately, that weekend, sent an entire Sunday's offering. That next Sunday, it, it, was, it was Labor Day Sunday, we sent that entire Sunday offering to the relief efforts after Hurricane Katrina. Now, could we afford to do that? No way. No way. We go from week to week. We go from week to week with our finances here. But we challenged the congregation. We said, give, you know, in this offering. And because there were people that were, their lives were devastated and they needed help and they needed resources and they needed it immediately. 
So we challenged people, said, give the largest offering that you can, that you can give. We are sending the entire thing. It was one of the largest offerings. In fact, it may have been, I think, the largest offering we had received to date was that Sunday. Now, how did we make it without that? I don't know other than God. I love where the Bible says, but God. Just do a study sometime and search and, and, and search that out. It's circle every time it says, but God. So that's, but that's, that's relief. Later on, we sent a, 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 a team to Pascagoula, Mississippi uh, for relief. Those are all relief efforts. And then there's restoration. Restoration involves, you know, long-term relationship to rebuild wholeness. It's the longer-term help. That's, you know, after a tornado hits, the Red Cross comes in or FEMA comes in, you know, provides temporary shelter, clothes, and food for a while. The church comes in, gives all kinds of help. And then after several days, Red Cross, FEMA, whatever government, whatever, they move on to the next crisis. The news stories start to fade along with all the attention. The world moves its, you know, on to the next crisis. And meanwhile, people are still trying to put their lives back together because you don't do that in a week or two. The news has moved on, the government's moved on, but who's still there? The church. The church. The church is still around to help people rebuild their lives, to help people rebuild wholeness. It's one thing to do a hit and run, you know, rush in, you know, help, move out. We need that. We need that kind of help. It's quite a different thing to stay through the mess of putting people's broken lives back together. Jesus saves people. We serve them. We serve them long term. Secondly, we're called to relate with people, not rescue people. And here's what I mean by that. We talk about empowering the poor, helping those who are struggling. You need to realize we're talking about people, not projects. We're talking about people. We're not just dealing with a group of people that's over there that we call the poor. We're talking about individuals. Every person is an individual with their own story, and their story matters. When I volunteered at Genesis Shelter House, one of the things that was important was, you know, to um, not just to look at the people who stayed there as the homeless. We've got to do something about the homeless in Bloomington. We've got to provide a place for, to give shelter to the homeless in town. Um, they're not just the homeless. They are individuals who, for whatever reason, were experiencing homelessness. And the reasons are many and varied. Some their own choices, many not. Each one had their own story. And it was important that each one be treated with dignity. See, Jesus does the rescuing, but he does it as we get to know people, as we build relationship with people, People who, just like you and me, were created in God's image. We don't ride in on a white horse coming to the rescue. 
we stand with people at the same level, eye to eye, in relationship with the people that we're serving. And that brings out the third thing we're called to do, and that is to reach out, not reach down. To reach down is to say that you're better than someone else. You're higher than them. You're better than them. And it just feeds the feelings of shame. But when you reach out, you're saying, hey, I struggle too. I don't have all the answers, but I care about you and I want to help. It's a difference in our attitude. If we truly want to empower the poor, we need to have an attitude of serving. We need to help people out of a mindset of hopelessness and defeat. You know, we have no money, we can't do this, you know, it's hopeless, to one of hope and expectancy. Now, I like to close out with, uh, I like to close these messages with a, uh, asking for some kind of response. Sometimes it's, you know, to raise your hand for something, uh, whatever. But this is what I want. I want you to go home thinking about something, okay? I want to close by asking a couple of questions. One, what type of poverty have you personally experienced? What kind of poverty have you personally experienced? Financial? Spiritual? Relational? Something else? What resources did you lack? And how did you get through it? Or if you're experiencing it right now, what is helping you get through it? What or who? Or Second question. Who do you know that is experiencing some type of poverty that you can help empower to change? And how? I don't expect everybody to come up with an answer right now, but what I'm wanting us to do is to think about how can I get off the bench and involved in the game? How can I make this to where it's not just, oh yes, I need to help the poor, so I'm going to send some money here or give some here, and we've done our good deed. But how can we be about the Father's business in helping empower the poor, change some mindsets, How can I serve someone that's trapped in poverty? How can I help to rebuild wholeness? How can I, how can I, you know, uh, can I relate to, to someone who's struggling? What can I do to reach out to them? Remember, the responsibility is not on us to fix things for people. I know some people will, will want that. They'll, they'll say, okay, it's your responsibility to fix this for me. That's not a responsibility. That's God's responsibility. Our responsibility is to listen and open our eyes to what the Father's doing and how he wants to involve us. So what is he doing with those around and what is he saying about us getting involved?
like to have the worship team come on back and come on up. I want you to